0: But hey, our favorite thing that we get to say in the service is grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible or own one, there's one in the pew back in front of you or maybe under your chair if you're there in the back and turn to Psalm 130 there in the middle of your Bible and give your attention to the reading of God's word today. Good morning, West Side. When you get to Psalm, everybody's going to need a Bible. Make sure you got a Bible. Psalm 130, as Jason said, page 576, if you're using the Pew Bible. When you get there, please stand. We're going to read the psalm this morning together aloud. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you, you open our eyes to what you have to say to us this morning, Lord, as we step into the Psalms of Ascent again. pray all this in your name. Well, we are back in the Psalms of Ascent. If, if, you're, if you haven't been with us uh, much this summer, we've been going through this series. The Psalms of Ascent, as we, if you may remember, are when Israel would, would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so every, many times a year they would go to Jerusalem, and these are the kind of psalms, the songs that they would sing on their way. So if you remember, the psalms is like the songbook of Israel. This is the kind of stuff that the hymn book, they would sing as they did different things. And this series of psalms is as they would go to make penitence at the temple. Um, and so here's a map that we've been kind of working with. So if you're coming from Nazareth, You go and you cross over the River Jordan and you go down into the the Dead Sea. It's literally the lowest place on earth. And as you get to the Dead Sea, you make a turn and you go to Jerusalem, which is on a hill. And so you start to ascend, the Psalms of Ascent, you start to ascend the hill to Jerusalem. And we've been working with this on the next slide, this this kind of idea that the Psalms of Ascent are like um, a physical journey that is a picture of our spiritual journey with Christ. So we understand, and I talked about a few weeks ago, that, that our spiritual journey is like a pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage going, just like the the, the psalmists are doing as they're going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And one thing I kind of had just kind of taken for granted and I start to think about as we go through these psalms is that it's not like they... Uh, They went through some good spots, and they sang all the good songs, and then they get to the the Dead Sea, and then they sing all the bad ones, and they turn, and everything's bright and happy, and they're moving towards. That's not really how the Psalms are put together. It's like this book is all of them, and they kind of go back and forth, and and that's kind of the same way it is in our journey, in a pilgrimage. Like we go through good seasons, and then it gets bad, and then Walter Brueggemann said it this way. He said the Psalms... What we see is that there's this this person who's going from orientation, everything makes sense, it's good, to disorientation, to a reorientation. that it changes and it moves along. And just as like a a surgeon general's warning this morning, this is a heavy psalm. Like we're going to move through some heavy stuff, so just hang on and stay with me. We're going to walk through some tough seasons, kind of like walking through the Dead Sea as we move and go forward. But the psalms, they're, they're not a linear journey, right? Just like our lives, it's not a linear journey that bad things come in and we we get stuck and we don't know what to do uh, when those happen. Um, But this psalm in particular starts with disorientation. The psalmist is crying out. There's something going on and he moves and he goes through and and he explains what this season's like. And then he gets to the end and the, the verbiage changes. And instead of saying, I, me, God, I, he turns and says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. So we see this progression from a disorientation to a new season of reorientation. But before he gets there, he lets out this scream. The psalm starts off with exclamation points. He turns and says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths. So this morning starts with this heaviness. See, this is one of the seven penitential, penitential psalms. It's the Psalms of repentance, of making penance for sin is where he's going. And it's this heaviness that we see. See, when the Hebrews wanted to talk about um, depression or anxiety or, or despair or death or the abyss or chaos in our life, they looked to the ocean because this is completely uncontrollable, right? They didn't have these big ocean cruise liners that just made them easy The ocean was the the place of chaos. So if you remember in the beginning, in in Genesis, it says, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, the chaos of the waters, and then he starts to separate and bring things into order. Or if you remember the disciples in the boat, right, with the storm that comes on and Jesus is asleep on the front, and and the the chaos, and they say, we're going to die, Jesus, don't you care? All through the Old Testament and the Psalms in particular, the oceans are the place of helplessness, of chaos, of chaos that can't be controlled. And that's where the psalmist is today. And he uses this word, tehom. It was the Hebrew word, out of the depths. But really what this psalm is most famous for is the Latin phrase, de profundis. Say that with me, de profundis. It's this where we get our word profound. It's kind of, it's a heaviness. De profundis. So when, when Jonah goes through his thing, and he gets swallowed by the fish. He uses the same kind of word, which, De profundis. Out of the depths I cry to you. It says it in Psalm 69 this way, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. Where there is no foothold, I have come into deep waters, and the floods sweep over me. There's one particular uh, thing I remember in my life when I was about 12 years old that I had a, a physical reaction that, kind of reminds me of what this feels like emotionally. So when I was about 12, my family took a vacation to uh, Disney World. And uh, there's this water park there that we went to and spent the day at. And they had one of these big wave pools, right? We've got a small version of this at Hydro Adventures here in Power Bluff, right? But this, was, this thing was massive. And so in my 12-year-old mind, I get out there and I'm going to go to the deep end, right? And they had these big crashing waves, one big massive one that goes all the way to the shore. And, and so I would ride that wave up. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how far I can ride this thing. So I go as close as I can to, to where this wave is coming out. And about the time I get there, they decide it would be a good idea to change everything up. And instead of these big crashing waves, they switch to the swells. I don't know if you've seen this. Maybe you've been out on the ocean, and, and you rem- remember the big swells that come out out in the middle of the depths of the ocean. And I'm 12 years old, right? I'm all of like five foot tall, and those swells get, catch me completely off guard. And at the bottom of the swell, I could barely touch the bottom, and then another swell would come up and crash over me, and it would lift me up, and I lost all control. And it was this terrifying feeling of floating out in the middle of nowhere, beginning to drown, being completely helpless. And that's like the emotional state that the psalmist is in today. So when I think of Dei Profundis, that memory comes into my mind. And there's this guy, I think he was Pakistani, grabbed me up, spoke no English, and we had this little interchange, and I just thanked him and went on and was totally terrified the rest of the trip, right? De profundis. What I learned and what the big idea that we're working with this morning in the text is that our hope in de profundis moments comes not from within us, but only in he who descended to us. So maybe this morning you're in the midst of a day profound, this moment. Maybe maybe there's chaos all in your life, that you feel out of your depths. This psalm is the prayer of all those people who have gone before us down the dark path and came out proclaiming what hope means. It's the, the song of someone who goes through disorientation and learns something new and that God works through disorientation and brings them to reorientation. It's a psalm about learning to trust God in the day-profundest moments of our life. But it's not a linear journey. And sometimes we can get off the path, we can exempt ourselves from the pilgrimage, and we do it in these day profundus moments in two ways. The first one is denial. Denial. Denial is the false implementation of hope. False implementation of hope. So it's taking hope some concept of hope, and shoving it prematurely where it doesn't belong. Let me explain it this way. In Jim Collins' famous book, Good to Great, it's a business book about how some companies make the leap and some companies go to greatness and others don't. They just kind of stagger in this mediocrity. He tells the story of this guy, Admiral James Stockdale. Maybe some of you remember him. James Stockdale's story uh, was really popularized by Jim Collins about his, uh, his imprisonment during Vietnam. So James Stockdale was the first fighter pilot. He he flew the first bombs into Vietnam, and he was shot down. He spent eight years in the Hanoi Hilton from 65 to 73. Eight years in a very vicious prisoners of war camp. He lived after the war with no rights, no release date. No certainty is that he'd ever survive. And they tried to use the, the, the prisoners as propaganda to show how well they were treating people, the, 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 the Vietnamese were. And, and he said at one point he beat himself with a stool and cut himself with a razor deliberately so that they couldn't use his image to the world to show how wonderful they were being treated there. After his release date, Stockdale became the first three-star officer in the history of the Navy to wear both the aviator wings and the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so in in, uh, the book, Good to Great, he asks him, he goes and interviews uh, James Stockdale, and he says, how on earth did you deal uh, with that situation without knowing the end of the story? And he said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn that experience into the defining event of my life which in retrospect, I would never trade. When he came out, he, got, he, he talked about how that event completely reshaped him. He came out stronger than he went in before, more mentally tough, more ready for life, going into a prisoner of war camp. And he decided that on his first day there. And, 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 and Jim Collins replies again, he says, that's incredible. He said, who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, James said, the optimists. The optimist, I don't understand. The optimists, oh, they're the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and it would be Christmas again. And they ultimately died of a broken heart. This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. At some point, we're all going to experience a day, profundus moment to where chaos takes over our life. How we choose to respond in that moment will determine if those experiences are going to be shaping for us or if they're going to crush us. How we choose to hope. But first, we often, we, as we're talking about, we, we deny by going straight to hope prematurely. We skip over the, the realities of our, our, our problems, the realities of the situation, the realities of the day profundus, and we try to shove the hope right there in the forefront and skip out of the pain and exempt ourselves out of that pilgrimage. But the Christian faith doesn't lean on shallow optimism, which is what it is. But what God's calling us to in these moments is to sit in the reality that we now face, whether this be a divorce, the ending of a relationship, or the death of someone close to us that now reorients our life and disorients our life into something we're not prepared to handle, and we try to import that old season of life into the season we're in now, we're not sitting in the reality of the circumstances we find ourselves in, where life demands something new of us, we have this knee-jerk reaction to, to jump to the optimism and skip over the pain of the now. This is why I have such a problem with like Hallmark and Lifetime movies. My wife would kill me if she heard me say that. Yeah. Because they, 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 they just paint this picture of that life doesn't have the struggles. And when they do, oh, he's got great plans for me and things are going to be wonderful. And it, 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 it glosses over the hard realities of our sufferings. Or we go straight to despair, Right? Because when we bump up against these hard realities of life, of, of, the, of the diagnosis or whatever else, it looks like there is nothing left and that the end is there. See, despair is, this. Not, despair is the anticipation of non-fulfillment. It's eliminating the possibility of hope. Yeah, God promised those things, but these realities are bigger than anything that he could fix at the moment. And we think that because the worst thing is now the real thing, that all of a sudden God is not there. Despair sets in. And it's like those waves are crashing over us again, and we're out of our element. But if Christianity says anything, if the message of the incarnation of Jesus says anything, then it's the worst thing is not the worst thing. That though death be at our doorstep and come over us, that God's still working something in. That even though what we had hoped for now no longer is a reality, that if we hope and we trust in the promises of God, that he will shape those experiences on this side or maybe the next side of eternity. We run from this despair. In fact, the psalmist says this in verse 5. He talks about how a lot of times these kind of deliverances and these promises of God don't come right when we hit the despair. He says this in verse 5. Wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his hope... In his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. If you've been in a day profundus moment, you've probably had those long nights of despair where all you wanted was the sun to come up, and you look for those things. What we see in the psalm is, here in a little bit is that the hope that God gives us is just as sure as the sun coming up, but it might be different. But we got to back up a little bit. As, as I said, this is a heavy one today. Because this psalm isn't just about our sufferings, which are heavy enough. But it's predominantly about sin. Fun, right? Wonderful. Here we go. Suffering and sin. That's hopeful. But look at this. Scroll down in your text a little bit this morning. Uh, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. It's about sin. So Jonah, if you remember, he, he was running from God. He was... He was running from what God had called him to do, and he gets put on this boat, and the seas go crazy, remember the chaos, and, and then the people on the boat realize that, oh, Jonah's the one who's at fault here. Let's get him out of here. They throw him overboard, and you would think at some point is going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my sin. Something's going on here. I should re- no. It takes a fish to swallow him. How long is he in the fish for? Three days. And it talks about he has this same kind of day profundus moment where he calls out to the Lord Jonah got real about his sin, and it took some real consequences to get him there. See, the psalmist is not necessarily just in sufferings because of the the world around him, but the sufferings that he's experiencing are because of the consequences of his choices. He's out here in a day of moment where nothing makes sense because of what he stepped into. But just like Jonah couldn't see it until he was in the belly of the fish for a long time, we deny the reality of our sin. The more we ignore the brutal facts, the brutal realities of the consequences of our sin or the realities of our sin, the more we become blind to it. The more we become blind to it. We do this in two ways. First, we self-diagnose. It's kind of like going on WebMD, right? And saying, ah, either... I'm gonna die, or which is what I do. But or we say, ah, I don't. Everybody's got those kind of cults. It's no big deal. I, despite this tumor that's growing out the side of my head, I'm sure it's just something that's gonna pass in a little bit. And we make light and little of it. We self-diagnose. We say it's not really a big deal. Everybody does it. Joe over there has been doing this for 30 years, and his life seems all right. It's the shrug of indifference to whatever we're we're, we're chasing after or what we've stepped into, despite what the people in our lives are saying and despite what the Word of God says. We self-diagnose, and that leads us to self-deception. Things aren't really that bad. You know, this thing's really making me happy, and I'm not happy where I'm at now, so maybe if I go this direction, whatever there's my happiness and we chase this ambiguous fleeting thing of happiness over God's holiness that he's called us to. A few weeks ago I was listening to this podcast, right, TED Talks. If y'all listen to TED Talks, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. These things are wonderful, right? Yeah. Well, they took these a number of different TED Talks and they mashed them together and took excerpts from these guys who knew what they were talking about and they labeled it seven deadly sins and they just went and walked through the seven deadly sins. If you're not familiar with those, this was an attempt by the church in the middle ages to to explain what sins are in a really easy uh, way. So they're not in the Bible, but they they place them together in a way that we can understand. And so they're like wrath and lust and these kind of things. and each one, for every, of the, every one of the seven deadly sins except one, each time they try to explain it away. ways. Oh, this isn't a big deal. Or actually, this makes us happy, and this is part of who we are. So like lust, they would say, this is part of humanity. And yeah, so what? You've committed yourself to one person for the rest of your life. That's okay. But don't deny that lust is part of it, and maybe that's something that we need to dive into a little bit more a, so to chase our happiness, right? It's this self-diagnosing and this self-deception about the hard realities of sin and its consequences. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, remember that, as I said, the right direction leads not only to peace, but to knowledge. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you're awake, not while you're sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. While you're making them, you can't see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you're drunk. Good people know about both good and evil, and bad people do not know about either. Our capacity for self deception is astonishing. And the deeper we go down that, the less we can see it, despite what everybody else around us is seeing or saying, what the word says. We work real close with a number of uh, addiction programs here at Westside. The John 316 guys have been a part of our life for a long time, Crossroads and some of those others. Recovering addicts see this so well, and it is so refreshing to hear their stories. That because of their decisions and, and the way they ran from God, that they experienced a the day profundest moment. Now they realize just because they think that things are all right, it may not be, they got real about the consequences and they stepped and stepped in the right direction towards Christ. And yet we here who maybe never dealt with that are much more prone to self-deception. We're much more prone to it. We have to confront the brutal facts about our sin. Because it's keeping us captive and sucking the life out of us, despite whether we see it or not. But the psalmist makes a turn. Verse 3, look at this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If you marked iniquities. See, when we get real about the consequences of our life, we realize we're in bondage to this thing. We're in bondage to this sin. And a lot of times we think that God is standing over us and and checking those things off, and despite whatever reality we've created in our life, that he's still holding these things over us because we keep choosing these bad things. This one really struck me. God's not marking our iniquities despite what I've dug myself into. That he's more excited about the possibility of what I could become if I just learn to wait and trust on him? That's where the psalmist goes. He's, at le- he's not waiting to pounce on me, that, that he is at least deeply focused on how, he's not deeply focused on how wrong it is, that sin is present in my life. Ellen, let me say it this way. Ellen Davis, an Old Testament scholar, says, says it like this. She said, God refuses to regard our sin as the most interesting thing about us. I read that line this week, and it just captivated my imagination. That our sin's not the most interesting thing about us. God is bored by our sin, but fascinated beyond all reason by our, by our potential for goodness. So God bends every effort to create the conditions in which that, that potential can develop. We think sometimes that God's more interested in the presence of the sin in our life than he is about his presence in our life. He's more interested in what he can turn us towards than in where we are now. He's more interested in redeeming our sins and the hard experiences of our life than he is for crushing us and making us pay for those. We forget this, and yet it's so freeing to remember that God's there eagerly awaiting us to turn and to confess and to proclaim our day profundest moments to him. Oh, Israel, verse 7 says, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Plentiful. That means a lot. And he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. There's one more word I want to introduce you to this morning. And it's the word that is behind that steadfast love. It's the word hesed. It's a Hebrew word that I cannot pronounce. It's hesed, hesed love. We don't have a way, a word that captures all the gravity of what this means in our English language. In fact, the Greeks didn't really have it either. But from one end of the Old Testament all the way through till the the fulfilling of this word in the, the person of Jesus Christ, we hear about the hesed love of God, the steadfast, resolute word of God. And what this is, Often translate like mercy, faithfulness, steadfastness, but what it is? It's covenant faithfulness. Covenant is this promise that God has made at great expense to Himself about His faithfulness to His people. It's a combination of a few things. It's a, an eager, tangible, uh, active love smashed together with faithful commitment of His promises. Because he said so. It's this passive love. It's undeserved generosity and care from God. A loyalty to the things he promised. And it's, it's rooted also in obligation. We don't like to talk about that, of love having obligation, right? Love has to be this free whatever thing. But God obligated himself to us in his promises, That's kind of what hesed love is. That God said that despite everything you've done, I'm going to be resolute in my love towards you. Hesed love. So when James Stockdale says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, what the scriptures does is reframe our wrong conceptions of hope around God's faithful hesed love, his covenant love. So our day-profundest moments, when we're out in the middle of chaos and we can't make sense of it, our day-profundest hope is met with chesed deliverance. Since our hope is not tied on ourselves or our outer circumstances, but on his faithful chesed faithfulness, it's safe to give up the denial and the See, before, it's scary to walk into that space. It's scary to walk into the hard realities of our suffering because that could lead us to despair or it's, it's scary to be real about what I've done in my life or what I continue to do or where I continue to chase. Those things aren't always safe. But with the promises of hesed love, God tells us he'll meet us there. Yeah, it's going to be a long journey. You're going to wait for that sunrise. You're going to wait with the watchman sometimes. But he promises to meet us in the middle of that. So God reframes this hope in three ways. He reframes it through hearing. God hears us in the midst of that, despite what we've done to get there or despite whatever the reality is, how hard that reality may appear. He promises to hear us. He promises to forgive. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Plentiful redemption. That word redemption doesn't just mean taking away what was there. It means equipping us. And putting us back on the the, the the path towards righteousness, he promises to redeem. How much does he promise to redeem? Plentifully, redeeming us from all iniquities. How many's all? All. All? That's a lot, right? That he promises to step into those places and to work with us and to reform us. But that means a few things for us. It means we run from our denial and our despair, and we run to the feet of Jesus. Because what hesed love means now is that there's no longer any fear in that. Hesed means God has provided me with every resource I need to experience his hesed love here, now, and even with these people. Remember I said that hesed is about obligations. God's obligated himself to us that when we turn and confess, See, our part of that, our obligation is to turn and be honest and confess our sins to God, to confess and lean on the community who share our pains and lean on our community when we fall into sin and denial to step into those places of the hard realities. 1 John says it this way. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But he's promised us this good when we step into that place. So we've been ending the series with three questions for the road. So we're about to step into a time of confession and repentance. But first, I want us to think about these as we go into that. First one is, what hard realities am I avoiding in my life? Maybe it's glossing over the, the, the sufferings that were of no fault of my own. Maybe it's stepping into those and providing those up to God in a a very vulnerable way. The second one is, what sins have I been ignoring? Hesed love means it's safe to ask that question. That there's going to be a good response on the other end of it. It's going to be hard, but it's safe and it's good. And the last question, where is God calling me to rest in his Hesed love? That's the theme of the psalm. Yeah, the reality is oppressing and it's crushing, but all has said is so much more, so much better. So, this morning, you have a handout in your bulletin. If you'll grab that, we're going to take a time to confess. There will be a brief moment of silence following as we reflect on what this means, and then we get to hear the word of God proclaimed over us that he forgives and redeems. So if you'll stand and grab that confession, it'll also be on the screen. O West Side, let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Almighty and most merciful Father, according to Your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O merciful Father, for His sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of Your holy name. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of as you come forward for communion remember that here on the table are the elements of God's Hesed love that God promised to redeem us from all our iniquities and he did that primarily by the sending of his son, the taking on of our flesh the stepping down into our day profundis. so when we come forward and we see blood and the body of Jesus we remember that the worst thing is not the worst thing Through these times, we can trust that he will deliver.